And now, Thriller Thursdays on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Chapter 8 It was 6 o'clock in the morning and I was ready to hand Squarejaw his big, ugly hat. I'm not entirely sure what he expected when he left me his business card, but I had the Beretta in my bag now and was through playing games. His exit from the office of Samuel Burker was pretty slick. I was willing to give him that on points. But then he had to go and lose the lightning round by leaving me his address like a stupid kid showing off. What kind of a name was Jack Justice anyway? How seriously was I supposed to take this guy? I get it that it would be tough for a fella to get a start as a private eye with a name like Emile Meeker or something, but do you really have to go 180 degrees in the opposite direction with a pseudonym? I wondered about the list of names he had rejected. Hunky McMahon? Lance Strongchin? I was keeping a low profile in the window of a coffee shop on the other side of Lake Street. The coffee was uniquely terrible and seemed to have been boiling for a couple of days until it was all roughly the texture of that skin you sometimes find on a bowl of soup. It was bad, all right, but it was still too quiet on the streets to be waiting openly. I had been up to the palatial offices of Jack Justice Investigations already, just on the off chance that the genius dropped my camera bag off before retiring for the night. The elevator had a sign posted on it that read, Out of Order, which did not look all that new. Some helpful wag had thoughtfully added the note, again, in pencil, so it looked like the office was essentially in a walk-up. The lock had been tougher than I expected, but still didn't present that much of a challenge. Inside, there were two desks, two chairs, two of everything that might suggest there were two detectives on the job. The moniker on the door showed no sign of a partner unless there were two Emil Meekers, each taking turns at being Jack Justice. Seemed unlikely, but if this bozo was doing well enough to afford a secretary, I was prepared to quit the business on principles. But it was not the case. One desk was mostly empty, and the stuff piled on top of it seemed to have been placed there from the other side, as if it had become the catch-all spot for anything that the great detective didn't really want to put away just now. The other desk was neater, but only just. I couldn't find any contracts more recent than 1947, but in what I assumed to be the inbox, there was a carbon copy pulled from a receipt book made out to Roger Mayfield. The paper was otherwise unrevealing. It just said, Retainer. People usually tore up any paperwork linking them to a private detective as soon as they were out of your office, but that was no excuse for not keeping contracts for yourself. There were filing cabinets full of case files, however one had not been started for Roger Mayfield yet, if indeed it ever would. Swell. Still, that seemed to be the solution to the great mystery of Jack Justice's timely arrival at Sam Burker's door. He was working for my client's husband, but as what? And why? Was he a bodyguard? If so, why had he been traveling without Mayfield? And why had he left while Mayfield was presumably still playing cat and mouse with Jay Timms, Dragon Lady? There had been no answers, and I had regretted getting up quite this early in the morning. Squarejaw kept a coffee pot in the corner that looked like a veteran of the Crimean War, and I toyed with the idea of putting it on and making camp at the empty desk. But the idea was to try and avoid a shootout if at all possible, so I made for the place across the street and waited. Half an hour later, I was in a foul mood, and it wasn't just because the unshaven lump of a man who seemed to own the place kept refilling my cup. It was because I knew that I had missed an elementary piece of deduction, and I hated it when I did that. Why would a man like Jack Justice, who did not strike me as unduly domestic, keep a station in his office to make his own coffee when he had a coffee shop across the street? 
Answer, because the coffee across the street would eat the lining of your stomach in 20 minutes. I decided to take my chances out on the street. I eyed the neighborhood. Not exactly glamorous, but I didn't know a lot of detectives with what you might call a great location. It wasn't an impulse buy sort of business, and there didn't seem to be much point in paying for frontage. People found you when they needed you, and when they walked in your door, they really didn't want anybody they might know to see them do it. Later on, they'd refer you to everyone they knew. It was fun to be the one who knew a reliable detective, like an honest plumber. But when their troubles were still legion, that was not the time to be public. The traffic was starting to get heavier now. Even here, there was a morning rush. People in cars everywhere. I had no worries about standing out except for reasons that I usually did, and there wasn't a whole lot I could do about that. There was a construction crew on the sidewalk to the east of Justice's building, and they looked like they had been there for a few days at least. There was no getting through that way, which meant he'd have to come from the west, or from the other side of the street, which was territory currently held by yours truly. So in any case, I was certain to see him. I expected him to be early. That's what I would do. And it seemed like what any sensible professional would do when there was an opponent who knew who you were and where to find you. Avoid them. Be early. Be settled in your space with a hidden pistol under the table when they arrived. Not Jack Justice. Idiot. It was now quarter to nine and I was getting fed up. I should have surprised him in his office. I should have found out where he lived and run him over in my car. I felt like a fool wandering the street and I felt like everybody I saw knew that I had been there for hours, when in reality it couldn't have been more than a few shopkeepers that noticed. I'm not sure what bothered me more. The fact that some of them must surely think I was a prostitute by now in spite of my conservative professional attire, or the fact that they must also think I was a depressingly stupid prostitute for hawking my tawdry wares in a terrible location and getting no offers to boot. If I did get an offer, I was going to shoot someone. That much was clear to me. By 10.15, I was leading up against a lamppost like a juvenile delinquent, wishing that I smoked cigarettes so I would have something to do. My plan had started out as a reasonable discussion with my opposite number and shifted over time to sticking him up for my camera bag when he walked up the front steps of his office building. An hour ago, I had fully intended to shoot him in the chest as soon as I saw him, regardless of how many people could ID me to the cops. A guy like this must have a hundred people who want him dead. But now I was just bored out of my tree. At 10.35, the morning traffic had slowed to a crawl and everybody who was going somewhere was now more or less there. There would be a hubbub of activity in the noon hour, but for now, the neighborhood was nicely tucked in and no Jack Justice. My feet were killing me. I peeled my tired eyeballs off the scenic vistas of Lake Street. My gaze rolled up to the windows above and settled on a familiar shape in an unexpected place. There, in what had to be the large window behind the occupied desk, was Jack Justice, taking photographs of me with my own camera. He saw me see him, of course. That had been the point. God only knows how long he had been standing there. I felt my eyeballs shake in fury as I pushed myself away from the wall. He moved the camera away from his face and gave me a small wave, a lampoon of a friendly neighbor across a fence. I pointed at him, and I'm not really sure what I was trying to say with that, beyond the fact that my heart was full of hate and it seemed like the thing to do. He reached for something that was hidden behind the window frame and held aloft a coffee cup, from which he drank, having first toasted me. It seemed like an invitation, and whether it was or not, that's what I was going to take it as. I took the Beretta from my bag and held it by my side, all business. There was, I confess, nothing but murder in my heart. 
the city with which I was in some small way charged to protect would be a better, safer, and less stupid place when Jack Justice was dead. I took three steps out into the now quiet stretch of Lake Street. I was at that moment both brandishing a firearm and jaywalking, though I did not expect quite the immediate response from the city's finest that I got. In that instant, there was a convergence of prowl cars, at least four with sirens muted but lights flashing. There could have been more, I couldn't say for sure, but there was also at least one unmarked car with them, all parked quite suddenly, higgly-piggly, every which way, the only common thing being that they all stood between me and the step of Jack Justice's building. The doors flew open and one attentive blue coat noticed the hardware by my side and drew his own weapon, hollering for me to stop where I was. Most of his brother officers were rushing up the stairs into Justice's building and two were running into the alley where I presume the fire escape he must have climbed to avoid me could be found. They had clearly made this trip before and knew the tricks. I was keeping quite still, being far too attractive to be used for target practice, and my prom date with the police special seemed a little rattled by the fact that I had not yet dropped the Beretta, which he had not actually told me to do. The doors of the unmarked car flew open, and a couple of hundred pounds of broken-down ex-beat cop lumbered out gracefully. I knew this one. His name was Sabian, and we had shared tea and cookies once or twice before. Drop it before he shoots you, princess, Sabian growled at me. He's a timid little cupcake, aren't you, Foley? The patrolman flushed and set his jaw angrily. I did not bother arguing either, but dropped the Beretta as gently as I could. I have a permit for that, I said. There was a ruckus from the building across the way, suggesting that the strong arming of Jack Justice might not be going quite as smoothly as planned. What's this all about, Sabian, I called. He ignored me and turned his attention momentarily to Foley. Cuffer and throw her in the back if you can manage it, he snarled, and radio base and have them call off the unit at Dixon's office. My head was spinning. I hadn't had quite enough sleep to be sure, but I was pretty sure I hadn't shot anybody yet. Four officers came out of the front door carrying my intended victim by a different limb each. I got the impression that everybody involved had done this before. Jack was singing onward Christian soldiers loudly and with no apparent knowledge of what most of the words were. I felt the cold steel of the handcuffs click around my wrists and the strong grip of Officer Foley on my arm leading me towards one of the prowl cars. All right. Now I was mad. This is Thursday Thrillers, audio with action on the Mutual Audio Network. Join us tomorrow on Mutual with Friday Follies. The end of the week collection of comedy cut-ups. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day of audio drama that fits your fancy. Or find the Friday Follies feed in your favorite podcast players. Now that's a lot of effus. The Mutual Audio Network, where we listen and imagine together.